Well, join me if you would in Acts chapter 14. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts called The Way. And uh, if you're new with us, you know, what we've been doing is looking at sort of bigger sections, really entire chapters, one chapter per week, and looking at how that individual story or the stories contained therein fit within the, the overarching story. You know, when you look at New Testament letters, the epistles, it makes sense and in fact is a responsible way at times to look at them sort of line by line and sometimes even camping out on a word. Um, but if you're looking at the stories, you don't want to parse every line. You want to consider each story, again, within the overarching uh, drama. And so that's what we've been doing. This is our 14th week uh, in the book of Acts. And, you know, the book of Acts is not just some old record of history that doesn't apply to us, but it is the story, the true story, of the, expand, the birth and the expansion of God's church and the, the advancement of the gospel and uh, the, the testimony of the risen Christ uh, post-ascension, uh, still doing a work by His Spirit and through His disciples to build His church. And it's not just a story, frankly. It is really our story. Uh, that is to say, you know, we have a role to play in it as those who tell other people about Jesus, as those who, according to our mission statement, treasure Jesus and become like Him together and share His gospel. And so God is using us still, present day, to advance His kingdom and to build His church. And in the chapter we're in this morning, chapter 14, we're going to see uh, more persecution that would happen to the earliest followers of Jesus, but also more evidence, more stories of God's miraculous interaction or intervention. And by way of encouragement this morning, we're going to see three surprising evidences of the faithfulness of God. And I say surprising because these are things that we may not necessarily expect, but ways that God would uh, sustain and encourage His people. We know that suffering is, is of course, part of the human experience, and I, I hope this is not the case for you, but maybe you're suffering even now physically or emotionally or relationally, and uh, we know that it's part of the, the human experience, and it will be intensified for those who profess Christ. Suffering will be even be magnified. And, um, and even though God doesn't remove our suffering at times, He doesn't eliminate conflicts from our lives, um, He does show us that He is a very present and a very faithful God. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. So look with me, if you would, at Acts 14, verses 1 through 7. Uh, we won't read every single verse in this chapter, but I'll read some and then summarize other parts and we'll explain it. So here reads the word of the Lord. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of folks, or both Jews and Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel." So if you were with us last week, we saw that Paul and Barnabas, they went into Antioch. They went into the, the Jewish synagogue. Paul himself, a, a self-described apostle to the Jews, and he started preaching the risen Christ in the synagogue in Antioch. And 
Of course, things didn't go very well. That, that sparked a lot of opposition. They were eventually run out of town, and they, they went from there to uh, Iconium, which is a, a city that uh, we know now is kind of in, in central Turkey. That's where it was located. Um, and as soon as they get there, they do exactly what they always seem to do, is they go into the synagogue, they start preaching Christ to the Jewish people. And by God's grace, God did a work. Verse 1 tells us that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, it's fascinating to me, I don't know if you've ever thought this before, but just how doggedly determined Paul is to reach his own people, the Jews. I mean, he's so persistent. Every new city he goes into, he goes into the synagogue, he's looking for the Jewish people, looking for the Jews, and he is sharing Christ, proclaiming Christ to his own people. Uh, he even says in a different book, in, in the book of Romans, that he says, I, I'm willing, I would be cursed if it meant the salvation of my own people. Um, he never gives up on the Jews. And yet, um, some would respond favorably to him, and, and, and many of those would actually reject him, hate him, and seek to destroy him. And I think there's some encouragement there, really, for those of us who have people in our lives who are kind of stubbornly resistant to the faith, and maybe they've heard the gospel many times, and maybe they've been in church for years, they've attended, but they, they just will, they don't respond in, in faith to Jesus. And um, I think there's encouragement there for us to keep and to keep praying for and to be persistent and uh, to keep having those conversations, expecting God to do something, uh, never giving up on them and seeing that God uh, will respond at, uh, oftentimes when we least expect. But there's a pattern that we see in the book of Acts, and let me illustrate it by way of a chart. It kind of looks like this. There's the, the apostles go and they preach Christ. So they're telling about Jesus and that he was the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament, that he rose again from the dead, and, and he is the one who, who is the, the Lord and the King and the Savior, the one before whom every knee will bow. So they preach Christ, and then that leads to division, just about every location. And we can even call it maybe mixed reviews. Some people uh, respond with saving faith, and they, they repent, and they turn from their sins, and they embrace Christ. But others, sometimes many others, become very angry and hostile and uh, violently oppose the message. And that leads to persecution. Sometimes the persecution is imprisonment, sometimes false accusations, uh, sometimes uh, physical violence, even culminating in, in, in stoning. And then that leads to divine deliverance. God will deliver His apostles, sometimes through earthquake and through the visitation of an angel. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes He confuses the people who are pursuing the, the apostles and He gives them a way out. And then once they're delivered, what do they do? They resume preaching Christ. They go to a new place and, and they continue to preach Christ. We see this cycle over and over, and we see it really in this chapter especially. The apostles go, all, go through all these things, but they're never deterred. They never throw in the towel uh, when it comes to suffering persecution or division, division. To the contrary, Paul will say later in the same chapter, verse 22, through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. And so Luke, who is, uh, again, the writer of Acts, this is kind of part two, you might say. He wrote his gospel, and then he wrote the book of Acts. He tells us that when Paul and Barnabas arrived in Iconium, a great number of folks believed. But those who didn't believe, they weren't just sort of passive in their disobedience. They stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. What this means is they... They leveled false accusations. 
against Paul and Barnabas. They, they drummed up false charges. They villainized Paul and Barnabas. They couldn't refute their argument, and so what they did instead was they attacked their character. And again, I mean, I'm going down a couple of side roads here. This is not the point of this passage, but I do think it's worth saying by way of some very practical application. Um, whenever we're having an argument with someone, a discussion, a debate, whatever it is, a conflict, and we resort to attacking the person rather than the problem, um, the, the conversation is then effectively over. Any hope of restoration is, is derailed. And so whenever we're having a conversation, it goes from, what about this, to, well, you are always this, um, then it really ruins uh, an opportunity for us to to see reconciliation and, and rec- uh, restoration. So if you want to resolve an issue, and maybe you have one going on right now that you just sort of been hanging over your heads, um, we focus on attacking the problem, not the person. Well, the Jewish leaders at Iconium and the Greeks who had sided with them, they attacked the person, persons, plural, rather than the problem. In verse 3, though, we see that the Lord bore witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So God enabled His missionaries, His apostles, to do these incredible miracles in order to authenticate the message of the gospel. Now, so He did that. God enabled them to do miracles. But along with that, even more stunningly, God brought two groups of people together, so Jews and Gentiles, Jews also called Greeks, into one spiritual family. These are people who had very different religious backgrounds, religious thoughts, ideologies, customs, and God brings them together, unifies them into one family. So here's the first surprising way that God shows His faithfulness. God vindicates His messengers by validating their message with reconciling power. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, To vindicate someone is to clear that person from an accusation. So maybe someone has accused you of something. Like someone says, well, um, what did you do with my chapstick? And then later it's discovered to be in in that person's purse, okay? Or Or they say to you, why did you leave the car on empty? And it's later discovered that someone else actually drove the car last and left it empty. Or someone says, why did you eat the last ice cream sandwich? And it's discovered that... Now, these, none of these things happened to me yesterday. So these are, not, these are purely hypothetical, right? Um, but sometimes, you know, you're accused of something, and then you're vindicated later. Now, to validate is different. Uh, to validate something is to prove that it's legit. It's a real thing. So we know that the gospel message divides. We know that this message of a, a risen Christ, you know, who, who is the ultimate authority on all things, the one, again, that everyone will bow down for before, the one who's coming back again, we know that that message of a, of, a, of a Jesus Christ dying on a cross will divide. We know it biblically. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, look, don't think for a second I came to bring peace. You say, wait a second. He says, no, I came to bring a sword. In other words, the gospel message will divide father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. So we know it biblically. We also know it experientially. Some of you know this. Some of you in this room have families that have been divided by 
the gospel. And certainly in other parts of the world, um, either greater, even greater separation has taken place as those who come to faith in Jesus then endure persecution and pursuit by those who then turn against them. So we know the gospel message divides, but the gospel message also reconciles, brings together, creates the deepest bond between the most unexpected people, people of different religious, political, racial, ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds, people who previously were enemies, people who previously hated one another, are brought into the same family, brought to a place where they show sacrificial love for one another as real, true siblings in Christ. And that's what we see in this passage, 2019. Maybe you came across this book by Thomas Terrance. It was a book called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love, How a Violent Klansman Became a Champion of Racial Reconciliation. Fascinating book and was on the, some of the best, uh, best of lists in 20, 000, uh, 2019. Well, in it, uh, Terrance tells the story of growing up in Mobile, Alabama in the 60s. Uh, eventually becoming a white supremacist and a member of the KKK. He was so filled with hatred and rage for for Jews and African Americans, even going to the point of trying to kill those that he deemed unworthy to live. Uh, One sweltering summer night, he recalls, as my accomplice and I attempted to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businesswoman or businessman in Meridian, Mississippi, we were ambushed in a police stakeout. My partner, a young female school teacher was killed at the scene. Four blasts of shotgun fire at close range left me critically wounded. Doctors said it would be a miracle if I survived 45 minutes. But he did live. Was sentenced to 30 years in prison in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. In prison, he initially started reading more books that would fuel his racial hatred. So anything that would continue to fuel his hatred... He got a hold of, he read, but eventually he, he, he said, I was in the search for something that was, that was really true, from truth, and so he started reading the Bible, specifically the Gospels. It's not as though he was unfamiliar with the, gospel, the Bible. He grew up in church, was baptized as a young man, uh, made a profession of faith, went to Sunday school. He called himself a Christian and believed he would go to hell, or wouldn't go to hell when he died. He believed he would be with Jesus in heaven. Of course, the truth was just the opposite, he said. I'd only give an intellectual assent to the gospel, and I lacked true repentance. But he said, I found myself, I found myself in the gospel, in the cell rather, reading the gospels. And he said, for the first time in my life, I was broken by my own sin. He said, I wept bitterly as tears of repentance rolled down my face. I realized that I needed to be forgiven, I needed to be cleansed. He said he put, he put his faith in Jesus Christ, was made new. And he said after that, he said he realized that, that God was delivering him from hate. He said, I began to grow in love for others. Friendships developed with black inmates and others who were very different from me, including the FBI agent who had orchestrated my initial capture, as well as the Jewish lawyer who helped me. He served eight years in prison, and then what he says, by, by virtue of a miracle, was granted parole to attend university. And that set in motion a, such a profound work of God that he said over the next 40 years, it led him into pastoral ministry in a racially mixed church. He was a co-pastor with an African-American uh, man. 
included speaking and writing on racial reconciliation and being sort of a foremost, a forefront ambassador in the treatment of all people equally as image bearers of God. That sort of reconciling power is something only the gospel has. And that sort of reconciling power as God brings people together who previously hated one another actually validates the message of the gospel and vindicates the messengers who are often accused of speaking hate. It's that reconciling power. See, there are two primary ways that God would validate or authenticate the gospel message. One was through miracles, so signs and wonders and incredible acts that God would enable those messengers to to perform, healing the sick of diseases, uh, giving those who were blind the ability to see mobility to the paralyzed, even life to the dead. Well, the other way that God would validate His message and vindicate His messengers was, again, by bringing into one family the deepest level of, of a bond that two people could experience, bringing into one family those who looked different, believed differently, had different customs and religious practices, and again, even those who had formerly hated one another. Now, I don't think, it's okay, you can disagree with me on this, but I don't think we should expect God to still be doing a lot of the former, especially in North America, that is to say, giving His people the the power to miraculously heal and miraculously raise people from the dead. Now, I'm not saying that God can't do that, and I'm not even saying that He doesn't or won't do that in other parts of the world primarily where there is no gospel witness. But I don't think we should expect that. However, we should expect that God will validate the message of the gospel by continuing to unite people into one family, again, who look different, believe differently, have different customs and practices, and even, in some cases, despise one another. God is reconciling people to Himself and subsequently reconciling people to one another. First, vertical forgiveness, but also horizontal forgiveness. Now think about how a forgiving community, what I mean as a forgiving church, will give credence to the message of the gospel. Elizabeth Bruning is a young lady who writes for the New York uh, Times and the Washington Post. She said recently, We've never had a culture that more demanded atonement without offering any prospect of forgiveness. And I think that's actually remarkably insightful. Call it cancel culture, call it our moralistic bent, call it our own self-righteousness, whatever it is, we want people to pay for the sins they've committed. Even if those are sins that took place 20 years ago for which they've already repented. We demand that people atone for their sins but we've lost the ability to forgive. Now think about the impact that a church would have where people who, yes, wrong each other all the time, who say things against each other, wrong each other in word, deed, motive, act, and so on, but they're eager to extend forgiveness and eager to grant forgiveness. Now think about the witness that a church like that would have. Think about the impact that a church like that would have. I have said in every church I've ever served, I've said it here, I've said it multiple times, it's not going to take that long for me to offend you, to hurt you, to probably wrong you in some way. I mean, I don't have any plans to do it. It's not on my calendar, but I know it's going to happen because I'm a sinful person. And it's not going to take very long, we know this already, 
for the people in this church for someone to wrong you or for you to hurt or wrong someone else. It's going to happen. That's what happens when redeemed sinners come together. But think about the impact that we'll have as we forgive one another, when we say hurtful things and do hurtful things and exclude one another, but we're eager to forgive. That's one of the ways that God shows His faithfulness, vindicating His people by validating the message with reconciling power. Now, speaking of miracles, um, Paul and Barnabas are run out of Iconium, so they're on to the next city. They go to Lystra, and there they find a man who was crippled from birth, and he had never walked before. And Paul tells the guy to get up, and the guy immediately gets up and walks, which prompts the people to start worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods. They refer to Paul as Hermes and Barnabas as Zeus, and they, they wouldn't stop bowing down to Paul and Barnabas and worshiping them. Now look at verses 14 through 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, as they, they got wind of this worshiping of them, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without a witness. What's the witness? For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So this is the first instance we have in the book of Acts of the apostles preaching to a predominantly, we might even say exclusively, pagan crowd. You know, their tendency is to go into the synagogue, preach to the Jewish people. Here they're pre- preaching to pagan Greeks who worshipped all kinds of other gods, hundreds of gods. And surprisingly, in this little snippet here, there's no mention of Jesus. So why wouldn't Paul mention Jesus here? Well, before Paul and Barnabas can present Jesus to them as the only way to the true living God, they have to first establish that there is only one God in a culture and an environment where, again, there were hundreds of gods. And as Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and discuss that they themselves are being considered gods, they proceed to tell the people they're wasting their time with, quote, vain things, verse 15. In other words, dead and lifeless gods. And they plead with them to consider the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And how how would they do that? They talk about how God is good to everyone, not just those who make sacrifices to Him. See, the Greek gods were the quintessential example of this Latin phrase, quid pro quo. You ever heard of this? It, It literally just translates what for what, but more loosely, favor for favor. And so... What it's saying is, you, you do for me and I'll do for you. And we see this, we, we, we see this in our relationships all the time. If you, you know, you, you, if you uh, will cook dinner, I'll clean up the dishes. If you'll mow the lawn, I'll do this, right? If you come to my grad party, I'll go to your grad party. If your mom and dad get me a gift, then my mom and dad will get you a gift. And, and, and so conditionalities, you know, just it's all pervasive, right? Well, the Greek gods were actually the... You know, they were kind of the pinnacle of this sort of arrangement, uh, the gods of antiquity. If, if the more you gave to them by way of sacrifice, generosity, self-denial, obedience, the more it was believed you would receive from them. And frankly, 
These gods were the vengeful sort. They were spiteful. They were angry. They were petty. They were even bloodthirsty. As the old saying went, they were armed with lightning bolts and a short temper. And so the expectation was that if I in any way, even if I don't realize it, if I offend one of these gods, then I need to brace myself. They were only good to those who were good to them. But Paul says that the living God who made the heavens and the earth is actually generous, gracious, good to all. God's own witness to his existence and grace, verse 17, is that he makes rainfall from heaven. He gives food and gladness to everyone, those who worship him and those who don't. He gives laughter to those who receive him and even those who reject him. So in a very real way, way, this God is good to all. Here's our second point as it relates to God's faithfulness. God reveals his presence and his unmatched goodness through his common grace. So in the passage we looked at last week, we saw that by his mercy and according to his infinite wisdom, in this crowd of people, these people who were hating Paul and Silas, God appointed some to eternal life. And those who were appointed to eternal life necessarily believed. So to some, God gives the gift of faith. But this doesn't mean that God is only good to some. This term common grace refers to every generous gift of God, short of salvation, that is enjoyed by an undeserving world. So things like sunshine and rain and food and laughter and friendship and beautiful music and glorious art and gripping literature and warm temperatures. and I mean, we could just go on and on. These are, these are good gifts from a good God to an undeserving world. We call this common grace. It doesn't mean that it's just ordinary. It means it's to all. And so God shows that He is very different than the gods uh, that the Greeks worshipped in that He is good to all. When I, when I first became a Christian, 12 or 13, I went from as you've heard me say probably many times before, never having been in church, to in church at least four times a week, and sometimes more than that. And so we were not in church, then we were in church all the time. And I had this Sunday school teacher as a, I guess it was a sixth grader, uh, his name was Mr. Bullmaster. Mr. Bullmaster was 6'3", and I know he couldn't have weighed more than 130 pounds. He was the thinnest man. I mean, I was worried for him as a sixth grader that he might just break in half at any moment. He was very, very thin and looked very fragile. But he was the embodiment of grace. He was compassionate. He was so loving and kind. And he would pray for things that I'd never heard of, never heard anybody pray for before. I'm just blown away by this as a, as a sixth grader. He would pray for, literally, he would pray for things like uh, dogs that don't bite, long-lasting car batteries. I mean, that was, this was a cold climate, and so this was a big deal. Um, he would pray, he would thank God for cumulus clouds, and uh, he would thank God for uh, babies that giggle and for clocks that keep accurate time. And he would just pray on and on, you know, and it, it, was, it was hard for us, six, for us sixth graders to kind of keep our composure when Mr. Bullmaster would pray for things like shoes that don't stink, and we're just like, what? who is this guy, right? Why is he praying for these things? But Mr. Bullmaster un- understood something about God's common grace, God's generous kindness toward all his creation. And he had a heart that just welled over with gratitude. And he was actually modeling 
the sort of common grace that Jesus himself referred to. Uh, earlier than that, the psalmist says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Such was not true, by the way, of the gods of antiquity. In Luke 6, Jesus says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Even though God doesn't save everyone, He is, in some ways, good to everyone. He gives good gifts to everyone, and He has concern for everyone. And He calls us to extend that same concern for our fellow image bearers. Now, back to the Apostle Paul. The way that he would present God to these idol worshipers was by contrasting the living God, who is good to all, and the, gods of, uh, the Greek gods of Paul's day who were capricious and spiteful and vengeful and bloodthirsty. And of course, the greatest irony of all is that the false gods of Paul's day insisted that if their followers were really to please them and really to be loved by them and really to be accepted by them, they must take their sacrifice to extreme levels, even cutting themselves. And so it was understood, if you want to be approved by the gods, you must bleed for them. But Paul introduces to them a God who is the opposite, a God who actually bleeds for his enemies, a God who comes and endures the scorn and humiliation and the pain of a cross to take the sins of those who are undeserving on himself. A God who doesn't say, if you want to be mine, you must bleed for me, but I'm going to make you mine, so I'm going to bleed for you. And I'm going to bring about a way to me so you can be reconciled to me. He pardons our wrongdoings by taking them onto himself on the cross. He doesn't eliminate us because of our disobedience, which was a common fear of the ancient gods. He doesn't zap us into oblivion because of our persistent failures. He himself suffers. God the Son, taking on the wrath of God the Father so that we could be completely and totally forgiven. He embraces humiliation, ridicule, rejection, something that would have been scorned by the gods of old so that we could be presented righteous by faith in His Son, never again to be condemned, never again to fear death, never again to fear God's final wrath. This was such an incredible contrast to the people who listened. They didn't know what to do. They had to worship someone. And so, verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. And so what happens is, recall that chart I put up a few minutes ago, what happens is the division begins to increase. More people come to faith, more people just get angry. More people repent and believe, more people are, they hove in the direction of violence. And sometime, after some time, the Jews have been keeping track of Paul's whereabouts. They find him and they confront him again. Look at verses 19 through 23. Uh, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went out on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations 
we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this is, there's a little gap between verse 18 and 19 in terms of time, chronologically, but this is not too far removed from this great miracle where Paul had uh, restored the ability to walk to someone who was crippled from birth, and yet the Jewish leaders, they want him dead. They see what's happening, so they want him dead, so they stoned him. They hurled rocks at his body and his head until he was bruised, likely bleeding, and had fallen unconscious on the ground. And then they think, they suppose, that they had gotten rid of him from good. They dragged him out of the city, left his body in the desert, to be consumed by the vultures and the wolves. But like every great Netflix series, right, the protagonist was not actually dead. The series would continue. The disciples found his body, gathered around him, and incredibly, you can just imagine the scene. They're standing there in the hot desert sun. Paul is bleeding. He's bruised, you know, from all over, and yet, and he sort of stumbles around and gets up. And what does he do? He goes and he takes a year off to rest. No, he doesn't. He goes right to the next city and preaches the gospel there. In verse 21, makes many disciples, encourages the souls of many, building them up in faith. And then he appointed elders in the churches there, training them and personally observing their growth in the Lord. So Paul's doing a lot of hard work. And certainly it would have been understandable, totally understandable, if he would have taken some time off. But he's so passionate, consumed with the glory of God and the salvation of the lost. He goes out still nursing painful wounds and he sees these incredible results. He sees new believers turning to faith in Jesus, disciples being made. He sees relationships being restored, new elders being trained and appointed in new church plants. And these are, these are, these are great gifts from the Lord that he allows his followers to see and enjoy, and yet another evidence of his faithfulness. Here's our final point this morning. God encourages his weary servants by allowing them to live to see gospel fruit. One of the greatest rewards for every believer, not just pastors, not just elders, not just church leaders, for every believer is to see God bring about gospel fruit. Sometimes it's to see God restore a broken marriage. Sometimes it's allowing us to see God work in a way to bring someone hard-hearted and very much against the things of God to a place of brokenness and faith. Sometimes it's God allowing us to see two people who were enemies united together, reunited. Sometimes it's allowing us to see God actually help someone understand who He is better, understand His plan of salvation better. God allows us to see these incredible things. These are gifts from Him. Now, we don't see them every day, typically. The work of God is a slow work, typically. The results, the quote, results that the Apostle Paul saw with thousands coming to faith at once, these incredible revivals and so on, these are not typical. In many senses, these are unique to a special time in redemptive history. This is not the pattern that we see throughout And frankly, that kind of discourages us. That frustrates us, doesn't it? We want results immediately. We demand instant gratification. 
We have self-checkout aisles and pay-at-the-pump gas stations, microwaves and air fryers, internet speeds of, I don't know what, a million gigabytes per second, whatever it is. We want things now. But this is not the way it works in the spiritual realm. Sometimes it takes years of prayer, decades of pleading with God. God works according to His own time, His own wisdom. He sees the whole picture. We only see a very, very, very tiny sliver of it. If I asked a five-year-old, do you think your daddy knows more than you do? He would most certainly nod and say, yeah, my, my daddy knows more than I do. Why? Why? Because the daddy has seen more and lived longer and experienced more. If I asked a teenager, do you think your mom knows more than you do? She would say, uh, no. My mom doesn't know anything. But that's actually not true. Her mom has lived longer and seen more and therefore knows more. If I asked a 30-year-old if her 80-year-old grandmother knows more than she does, she would say, well, absolutely, of course, because she's seen more and lived longer and experienced more. Well, God has always lived. God doesn't have a beginning. God is not created. God is the creator. So God has always lived, and God has always, at every moment, seen the whole picture in front of Him. All eternity rolled out before God. Everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen, it's all in front of Him. He knows it all. He knows infinitely more not just a little bit more, or not a lot more. He knows infinitely more than we do. And even though sometimes our situations seem so hopeless, God is at work, and sometimes as a gift to us, for His glory and for our good, He allows us to see something incredible, something even miraculous take place. And I don't know what God has in store the next minute. I'd be foolish to presume to know anything that God is about ready to do. But I do know this. He is continuing to build His church. He's promised that. He's continuing to make disciples. He is continuing to bring people to saving faith. And He may have something in store for you and your family or your marriage or your circle that you can't even imagine. But if we look around, we look closely enough, we see the evidence of God's work. We see His goodness and His faithfulness. We see uh, how God uh, gives us a glimpse into what He's doing. We see His goodness by virtue of His common grace, His good gifts all around. And we see that only by His grace, He is continuing to do a work. We are saved by His grace. We grow by His grace. He brings other people to saving faith by His grace. And we will continue to the end by His grace, where we, where we will see with fullness and clear vision all that this glorious God has accomplished. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your faithfulness, your love, and for your grace. And even as we sing together as a congregation about this grace that has brought us into fellowship with you, and this grace that will lead us home, will you give us the grace to believe it? And will you help us to rest so solidly, so securely, so exclusively in the finished work of Christ that our souls are greatly encouraged in you. And I want to pray this morning for the person here who is struggling, 
emotionally, mentally, physically, relationally, vocationally, whatever it is, Lord. I want to pray that you would work by your Spirit to bring about supernatural encouragement. I want to pray for the person here this morning that maybe no one else knows this, but is in a marriage that just seems to be crumbling. Or maybe uh, is in a, a relationship with a son or daughter that is just characterized by tension all the time. I want to pray that you would allow that person to see some gospel fruit. I want to pray that you would allow that person to see you break through and soften hard hearts. I want to pray for the person here who's puffed up with self-righteousness, thinking of all the ways this sermon applies to everyone else. I want to pray for the person who is just so beaten down and worn out. They're thinking, I don't know what, if I'm going to muster the strength just to finish this day. Lord, I pray that you would attend to all of us by your Spirit. And I pray that you would minister to us in such a profound way that we celebrate and sing about and rest in your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.